0: So, we will recall that in Joshua chapter 6, the people of Israel conquered Jericho, but Achan sinned and took for himself that which ought to have either been destroyed or devoted to the Lord, a little bit of each. In chapter 7 of Joshua... After destroying this flagship city of Canaan, this fortified city of Jericho, there's this tiny little village, basically, of Ai, which defeats the Israelites. Of course, this causes great consternation to the people of Israel. Is the Lord not with us? Why have we fallen before Ai, especially after conquering Jericho. It doesn't make sense naturally speaking. And the Lord reveals that it is because of the sin of Achan that the people of Israel fell before Ai. And so the sin becomes known by the casting of lots. And Achan and his family are killed. Then Israel goes up and conquers Ai quite decisively. This is the context behind the section that we're looking at tonight, Joshua 8, 30-35, which I just read for you. It is after Israel defeats Ai, after dealing with Achan's sin, that we read, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, etc., etc. And everything that we just read in Joshua 8, 30-35, there is this scene where the people of Israel stand half of the tribes on one side by Mount Ebal and half of the tribes on the other side by Mount Gerizim and the blessings and the curses of the covenant are rehearsed the words of the law are written on this altar which I think we need to understand that it was the Ten Commandments which were written there as opposed to for example the whole book of Deuteronomy because you wouldn't be able to just realistically write the whole book of Deuteronomy on stones and so it seems that what happened is that the Ten Commandments are inscribed on the stones and then people stand on either side and the blessings and the curses of the covenant are rehearsed. Now, immediately after Achan's sin, the fall of Ai, or or, pardon me, the, the defeat before Ai, because of sin and then the fall of Ai because of dealing with sin and rooting it out and being obedient to God the rehearsal of the blessings and curses of the covenant would have been especially poignant and would have been perceived as not merely abstract and removed a step removed from daily life but immensely practical the Israelites who died in the first battle against A.I. died because of the covenantal curses. So you have widows and fatherless children standing there hearing about the curses of the covenant. Conversely, after defeating A.I. and the restoration of hope and optimism that Israel will be able to actually conquer Canaan, the blessings of the covenant, covenantal obedience would be, again, quite poignant. We must obey God or we will fall even before little cities like Ai. And we must obey God in order to receive the land flowing with milk and honey, which He has promised to us. So in God's timing, providentially, there is a timely, poignant reminder of covenantal blessings and curses occurring right at the junction when Israel would be most receptive to hearing those things. There's that saying, "Strike while the iron is hot." Well the iron is hot, so to speak. And so this rehearsal of covenantal blessings and curses is striking while the iron is hot, while the hearts of the people are considering these things, the importance of obedience and the death and destruction and destitution that will fall upon Israel for disobedience as was the case in small measure proportionately in the defeat at Ai. So there's providential timing here. It is obedience to Deuteronomy 27 where Moses commanded obviously at the Lord's behest that when you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of the law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you. And then Moses goes on to command that half stand at Ebal and half stand at Gerizim and that the the blessings and curses be rehearsed. So this was when they were on the east side of the Jordan before Moses died. Before... They even conquered Jericho, let alone had these battles with Ai. It was commanded that these things be rehearsed when they go over westward into the land. So it was obedience to what had been commanded already in Deuteronomy 27. But it just so happens that it was also providential timing to bolster the Israelites' faithfulness to God. It's interesting to me that the sermon tonight is going to be very similar to the sermon this morning, because when I started preaching in Genesis 1 in 2017, I had no idea that we would be in Joshua 8 this evening. Likewise, when I began Revelation however many months ago, I had no idea that we would be dealing with similar subject matter this morning. But as God would have it, In obeying his instruction to preach the word in season and out of season and in our ordinary manner of working through books, we just happen to have two similar sermons today. I would ask you to consider whether this might be providential timing, that perhaps the Lord is striking while the iron is hot in your life. As is so often said, I don't know who needs to hear this. <laughs> but in God's providence, we have two pretty sobering messages about self-examination today. Let us consider, with respect to this evening's text, the nature of the Old Covenant. We know that it was conditional. Conditional. There were blessings for obedience, and there were curses for disobedience. That should be very readily apparent to us as we think about the text tonight, because what they do is they rehearse the blessing and the curse, according to Joshua 8:34. We're not going to read it for the sake of time, but if you'd like, you can go back and you can read the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 28, which is what they rehearsed at Gerizim and Eba. If you obey the Lord your God, then blessed will you be in the meeting bowl, and blessed will you be in war and battle, and so on and so forth. And if you disobey, cursed will you be in all these ways. This is what they rehearsed. So we know that this covenant that they were in was conditional. We talk about the covenant of works made with Adam, whereby God promised that if Adam disobeyed, then he would surely die. Implicitly, we know that had Adam obeyed, that he would have actually not only not died, but confirmed himself and his posterity in blessedness, which is a subject too big and a step removed from what we're dealing with tonight, so I won't belabor that point, but we talk about the covenant of works in that context. The old covenant was not the covenant of works in the sense that it's not as if Israel was renewed to a state of innocency the way that Adam and Eve were before the fall, whereby God then placed them under the exact same conditions as Adam and Eve before the fall, where if they... Disobeyed they would die and if they obeyed they would live and confirm themselves and their posterity in blessedness forever No, that's not what the old covenant was. It's not the covenant of works repeated However, it was a covenant of works if I can put it this, this way the old covenant Was a covenant in which if you obeyed you would be blessed and if you disobeyed You would be cursed Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is the nature of what Moses wrote about. The righteousness based on the law, that if you do the commandments, you live by them. You obey, you're blessed, you live, so on and so forth. So the nature of the Old Covenant was conditional. It was not the Covenant of Works, but it was a Covenant of Works. Following from that, another thing about the nature of the Old Covenant is that it contained Gospel promises, but itself did not save. What I'm not saying is that no one was saved under the Old Covenant. What I am saying is that no one was saved by virtue of the Old Covenant. So, we remember the well-known passage in Hebrews 10, and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Nobody was saved by the blood of bulls and goats. Nobody was saved by the intercession of the Levitical priesthood. Nobody was saved by virtue of the types and shadows and figures and images of the gospel which were present in the Old covenant. All those things were, were types and shadows and figures and images. Of the gospel Hebrews 9 says 9 and verse 24 says that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear before God on our behalf so the old covenant taught us that we need an atoning sacrifice That we need a lamb, as it were, to be slain in our place as our substitute to take away sin. We need someone to represent us before God and to plead our case and so forth. Jesus comes and does all of those things for us. He is our sacrifice. He is our priest, etc. Jesus and his ministry are the true things, in the words of Hebrews 9.24, of which the Old Covenant things were copies, types, shadows, figures, images, etc. And so it was not by trusting in the efficacy of bulls and goats that people were saved, nor by trusting in the mediatorial work of the Levitical priests that people were saved, but it was by trusting in the grace of Yahweh that we need a sacrifice, we need a priest, and we see that Yahweh is gracious to provide what we need. We rest on the mercy of Yahweh. The logic that is drawn out for us in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, is that if the sacrifices of the Old Covenant had been actually effective to take away sin, they wouldn't need to have been offered But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The logic is that even the old covenant Israelites could have reasoned that, hey, if we have to keep doing this over and over, it must not be that effective. By way of analogy, as I've said before, if you need to keep calling a plumber to your house day after day, morning and evening, to fix the same leak, Listen, he ain't a very effective plumber. Right? So when you offer the same sacrifices for sin, morning and evening, day after day after day, plus all of the additional sacrifices, like the annual day of atonement, it stands to reason that you should go, I don't think these are very effective. This is the logic of the beginning of Hebrews 10, which means that even the old covenant Israelites could have perceived this. We need atonement. We need a priest But it seems like these particular ones are not actually that effective. Which must mean that Yahweh is teaching us something. That these are object lessons. That these are types and shadows of better realities and good things to come, and so on and so forth. And they might remember back to when God promised in cursing the serpent, that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Stands to reason that none of these lambs crushed the serpent's head. None of these Levitical priests crushed the serpent's head. But one is coming who will. So even if they didn't understand everything, there was this sense that Yahweh is going to provide what is needful. Where is the sacrifice? As Isaac asked Abraham on the way to Mount Moriah. I don't understand everything but the Lord will provide surely it is by trusting in the mercy and the grace of Yahweh to provide what is needful for us and our salvation that people were saved obviously they didn't know the name Jesus but they could have understood that a Messiah is promised who is going to come and is going to save and is going to bring these things To a fulfillment in a way that maybe we don't really understand right now, but we take it on faith that Yahweh is going to deal with our sin fully and finally in a way that these sacrifices and these priests never do. So no one was saved by the Levitical priesthood intercession, nor was anyone saved by the blood of bulls and goats. But they were saved under that system by faith in Yahweh's grace and in the promises that he had made which Yahweh eventually came to bring to fruition through Christ Jesus. So the nature of that covenant was that it was conditional and that it did not save though it contained gospel promises by which people could have been saved. In these ways the nature of that covenant is different from the nature of the new covenant. Is different from the nature of the covenant that Christ mediates. And you might, depending on how you've been taught covenant theology, you might say, well, Christ mediated that covenant also, didn't he? But Hebrews 8.6 it's talking about the first covenant and then a new covenant. Citing from Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8.6 tells us, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better. Which implies that He is the mediator of the new covenant and not actually a mediator of the old covenant. And it says, Since it is enacted on better promises. There is a first covenant which Christ did not mediate. There is a second covenant which Christ does mediate. And the second covenant is better, Hebrews 8, 6 tells us, than the first. So these covenants differ. They differ in that they are not conditional. The, sorry, in that the second covenant is not conditional to us. And that the second covenant saves We see in Hebrews 8, citing from Jeremiah 31, verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. The new covenant will not be like that covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So on and so forth. Back in Jeremiah 31, the language used is as follows. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. The contrast here is between a first covenant in which it was possible for people to not continue in it in which it was possible for it to be broken, the new covenant will not be like that. That's one of the differences that is implied in Hebrews 8, citing from Jeremiah 31. The new covenant is not able to be broken by us. Nobody who is actually in the new covenant can default on the terms of the covenant such that they fail to inherit the blessings of the new covenant. And among the blessings of the new covenant are salvation. As we go on in Hebrews 8, citing from Jeremiah 31, we read this, and again, remember, the point here is contrast. What the author of Hebrews is doing is contrasting the first and the second covenant. And it says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, the second covenant, the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds, which is a difference from the first covenant, and write them on their hearts, which is a difference from the first covenant. The laws were written externally in the first covenant on tablets of stone. They are written internally impressed upon our hearts in the second covenant. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just stated, matter of fact, that's what's going to happen. That was promised. If you do these things, Exodus 19, then I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell with you and you will be my treasured possession and so on and so forth in the second covenant it's just stated matter of fact listen i'm going to write my name on or i'm going to write my law on their hearts and i will be their god and they will be my people and verse 11 of hebrews 8 and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest everyone in the new covenant truly knows the lord which again is different than the Old Covenant. You think of people like Dathan and Aberam, possibly Achan, although as I mentioned to you, it's conceivable that he experienced a temporal punishment and yet was himself saved from his sin. It's conceivable. We don't know. But you think of the the rebellious, the wicked, the godless in the Old Covenant. They did not know the Lord in the way that Hebrews 8 talks about knowing the Lord, but all in the New Covenant Shall know the Lord. Verse 12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And who's they? It's the same people described in verse 11. Each one of them, from the least of them to the greatest. To be in the new covenant is to know the Lord and to have God be merciful toward your iniquities and to remember your sins no more. That is part and parcel of being in the new covenant. There were believers in the old covenant who knew the Lord, and God was merciful toward their iniquities and remembered their sins no more. But there were also unbelievers in the old covenant Who did not know the Lord. And God was not merciful towards their iniquities. And did not remember their sins no more. You could be legitimately in that old covenant. And not know the Lord. And not be forgiven. Whereas to be in the new covenant. Hebrews 8 tells us. Is to know the Lord. It is to have your iniquities. Forgiven. Your sins remembered. No more. So the New Covenant, then, doesn't present us with this idea of if you sin, you've broken the covenant and you're out, or you're cursed. The New Covenant presents us with a very different idea. If you're in the New Covenant and you sin, God forgives that sin. Remembers it no more. In this way, it's very different from the conditional covenant, which was the old. And unlike the Old Covenant, which itself did not save, to be in the New Covenant is to be saved. You cannot be in the New Covenant and not know the Lord and not have God be merciful to your iniquities and remember your sins no more. So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different. And yet there are still warnings attached to New Covenant religion. So what do we do with that? We Think about passages like Hebrews 6, which says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. Or Hebrews 10, verse 26, which says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins, But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? By which, he has sanct- has been, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Well, listen. If you're born again, you can't be unborn again. How does that even make sense? If you've gained eternal life, how could that life end? How could you unget eternal life? Again, it just doesn't make sense. Doesn't. Strictly speaking, you can't lose your salvation. If you have it, it can't be lost. Therefore, we have to understand these warnings attached to New Covenant religion. Not to be speaking of losing our salvation, but both to help us diagnose. If we are new covenant imposters, as well as to cause us, as well as to bolster our faithfulness and cause us to persevere, there are no curses in the new covenant, strictly speaking. There are no curses attached to the New Covenant, strictly speaking. You're not going to get any curses by virtue of the New Covenant. But there are curses attached to New Covenant religion. And that's what I'm going to try to tease out here. Hebrews 4.11 says that we should Strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that the Israelites fell by, which was not believing and following God all the way home. Hebrews 12 uses the phrase falling away. Wait, no, not Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We have biblical warrant to use language like this. Falling away. When people fall by the same sort of disobedience, not persevering in faithfulness, God, not believing, and they appear to depart from the faith, we can call that falling away. Hebrews 3.12 calls it falling away. But speaking more precisely, it's not right to understand it that they were born again and then they were unborn again. That they got eternal life and then ungot eternal life, got eternal life and then had to give it back, or something like this, so to speak. Speaking more precisely, in these cases, it is a manifestation of counterfeit Christianity and of what we might call natural faith as opposed to supernatural faith. So, people say, well, faith is a gift. Of course, they draw that from Hebrews, or, pardon me, from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, even the faith, is a gift of God. So faith is a gift. But it's not a gift in the sense that unbelievers have no faith in anything. Unbelievers have faith in all kinds of things. We have faith in politicians to bring us into a utopia, which is evidenced by the political wars and battles that we witness on social media. Unbelievers have faith in essential oils to you know, fix all of the skin problems and digestive problems and sleep problems and so on and so forth, whatever you have. Unbelievers have faith in money to bring them happiness. Unbelievers have faith in career to bring them fulfillment. So on and so forth. Look, unbelievers have faith in Allah. Right? Or the teachings of certain gurus to bring them into a state of Zen. Unbelievers have faith and exercise faith. It's what we might call a natural faith in the sense that it's part of our human faculties that are just simply exercised to place confidence in something. It is possible to merely take that faith And like a phase that you're going through where you're kind of into essential oils or into Eastern philosophy and mysticism or into your career or whatever, it's a phase of your life that you're going through. It's possible to just take those natural faculties and start going to church. Start following Jesus. It's possible to just be like, yeah, it makes sense to me. And you have the same, the same kind of confidence in Jesus that you have in whatever else because you read a cool blog about it or saw a little video about the merits of this or that or the other thing. What that faith is is not a supernatural faith which arises from a heart change that God gives What that faith is, is not a supernatural faith which arises from the blindness and deadness of our spiritual perception being taken away such that we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. What that faith is, what it manifests itself to be, is a temporary thing by which we just kind of worked ourselves up to confidence in Jesus like a bunch of people work themselves up to confidence in Donald Trump towards the end of his last term, that's all that faith is, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower teaches us about this kind of faith, guy goes out to scatter some seed, you know it. falls on different kinds of ground When Jesus explains this parable, he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is people that just never believe in any sense. But then Jesus goes on and says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. But endures for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution on account of the word arises, immediately he falls away. Just like when it's no longer politically expedient to put your faith in this candidate or that candidate, and you just say, all right, well, on to the next thing. Or perhaps if essential oils don't make your wildest dreams come true, and you go through a phase and then you say, "Nah, eh, not going to put it in the budget anymore. You know, or whatever else it might be. And you just say, eh, I give up on that. As for what was sown among thorns, it's the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Again, there's to get busy. Stop going to church. You know, stop reading the Bible, stop praying, whatever, and then after a while you're just kind of like, what was that face? Just something I used to do. Yeah, I used to go to church. Jesus teaches us that there is this kind of faith It's just the way people have confidence in this, that, or the other thing for a period of time. People just kind of come to the church and put some confidence in Jesus for a time. But it's not arising from a heart change. It's not arising from a spiritual enlightening of the heart and mind. A taking away of the blindness, the scales falling from the eyes, so to speak. 1 John 2.19 It's talking about people who have left the faith. And it says, they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that they all are not of us. This is the more precise way to understand falling away. This is the more precise way to understand the curses relating to New Covenant religion. If you take the name of Christ, If you call yourself a Christian, you get into the Bible, you get into prayer, you get into Christian fellowship, and you're doing the new covenant religion thing, but you go on sinning deliberately. You stop believing at some point, walk away from that. You're bringing on yourself worse judgment than the old covenant curses. It doesn't mean that there were people in the New Covenant legitimately who end up being cursed in the end the way that in the Old Covenant there were people who were in that covenant legitimately and ended up bringing the covenant curses upon themselves. But it does mean that there are curses pertaining to New Covenant religion. That Jesus isn't to be played with Jesus doesn't want to be a phase of your life that you're going through. And that God will not allow His Son to be held up to contempt like that. And so if you're just playing with God, the Christian game, there are curses which will fall upon you for playing that game with God. You're holding the Son of God up to contempt God doesn't tolerate that all of this is to say the Old Covenant is not the New Covenant so we don't we don't need to be reminded of the Old Covenant blessings and curses per se because they don't apply directly to us though we recognize there is some principle of general equity that man is blessed, who does not walk as wicked men advise and so on and so forth. But it's not strictly speaking like if we obey God, we can go battle the next country over and win. If we obey God, we will have lots of money. that We will be fertile and have lots of children and so on and so forth. These, are, these don't apply directly to us in the same way that they apply very directly and very literally to the Old Covenant people. So we don't need to line up on Gerizim and Ebal and rehearse Deuteronomy 28 about the Old Covenant blessings and curses. But listen here. It's good for us to hear about the blessings and curses pertaining to New Covenant religion. It's important for us to remember that whoever is in the New Covenant knows the Lord. And that God is merciful towards their iniquities and remembers their sins no more. It's good for us to be reminded of that, the blessedness of being in Christ, of being in the new covenant. We need to hear that sometimes, and it spurs us on to continue in faithfulness because of the blessings of the covenant. And there are curses associated with new covenant religion. You're just playing at new covenant religion. There's nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment for you. And it's good for you to hear that sometimes too. And not always, not always just good news and gospel preaching and encouragements and so forth. Sometimes you need to hear, you you need to give sober thought to the state of your soul. Test yourself, examine yourself as Corinthians says, to see if you are in the faith. You need to hear that not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter His kingdom. And that there are some who have just been playing at New Covenant religion who will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Just like it was good for them to hear the blessings and curses related to Old Covenant religion. So it's good for us to hear the blessings and curses related to New Covenant religion. As I said at the beginning, I don't know who needs to hear this. It may be simply just that in the course of our consecutive exposition we happen to be here. And it's just due process, and this is what's in the text, and so this is what we're dealing with. And that may be, that may be all. Maybe may be it. But it might be more than that, as it was more than that at the end of Joshua 8. When God commanded that they rehearse the covenantal blessings and curses when they get into the land of Canaan, they didn't know that they were going to end up doing it right after all that transpired with Ai and Achan's sin. But it ended up being very timely for them to have that reminder. Perhaps it is the case that someone needs to hear this, and that you're at a spot right now where you really need to soberly consider this, the blessedness of being in Christ, the danger of just turning the grace of God into a license for sensuality, as Jude chapter 4 says going on sinning that grace may increase, which Paul says, by no means must we do. Perhaps you need to be warned of the danger of going on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth. Perhaps you need to be reminded of the peril of seeing and tasting and experiencing, as Hebrews 6 puts it, and falling away and perhaps it is that God in His grace has so providentially appointed that you heard a sermon like you heard this morning you heard a sermon like you heard tonight because right now you need to hear that let us all give careful consideration to the state of our souls let us remember that we must be in Christ remain in Christ continue trusting in Christ continue walking with Christ continue following Christ this is what the genuine article looks like let us remember that those who are in Christ are saved we shouldn't we shouldn't walk out of here with just pure heaviness discouragement and negativity. Those who are in the new covenant know the Lord. God is merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. But even as we think about Christ and think about His cross, let's remember that that is how seriously God takes sin. That Christ was crucified for it. Ye who think of sin but lightly... those who don't think of its evil as being great here at the cross or there at the cross I should say you may view its nature rightly there at the cross its guilt may estimate so let us think about Christ Jesus who underwent the curse of the law for us met its conditions so that to us Our experience of the new covenant is that it's unconditional because of the meeting of the conditions that Christ offered up for us.